Volume One, Chapter One of Autobiography of a Seaman by Thomas Cochrane. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. My boyhood, and entrance into the navy. My birth is recorded as having taken place on the fourteenth of December, seventeen seventy-five, at Ansfield in Lanarkshire. My father was Archibald, ninth Earl of Dundonald. My mother Anna Gilchrist daughter of Captain Gilchrist, a distinguished officer of the Royal Navy. My father was descended from John, the younger son of the first Earl, noticed in the introductory chapter as the companion of Argyle. On default of issue in the elder branch of the family, the title devolved on my grandfather Thomas, who married the daughter of Archibald Stuart, Esquire of Torrance, in Lanarkshire, and had issue of one daughter and twelve sons, the most distinguished amongst whom, in a public capacity, was Admiral the Sir Honourable Alexander, father of the present Admiral Sir Thomas Cochrane. Some of my father's earlier years were spent in the Navy, in which he became an acting lieutenant. A cruise on the coast of Guinea gave him a distaste for the naval profession, which, in after years, postponed my entrance therein far beyond the usual period. On his return home, he quitted the Navy for a commission in the Army, which was, after a time, also relinquished. Of our once extensive ancestral domains, I never inherited a foot. In the course of a century, and before the title descended to our branch, nearly the whole of the family estates had been alienated by losses incurred in support of one generation of the Stuarts, rebellion against another, and mortgages, or other equally destructive processes, the consequence of both. A remnant may latterly have fallen into other hands from my father's negligence in not looking after it, and his unentailed estates were absorbed by expensive scientific pursuits presently to be noticed, so that my outset in life was that of heir to a peerage without other expectations than those arising from my own exertions. My father's day was that of Cavendish, Black, Priestley, Watt, and others, now become historical as the forerunners of modern practical science. Imbued with like spirit, and in intimate communication with these distinguished men, he emulated their example with no mean success, as the philosophical records of that period testify. But whilst they prudently confined their attention to their laboratories, my father's sanguine expectations of retrieving the family estates by his discoveries led him to embark in a multitude of manufacturing projects. The motive was excellent, but his pecuniary means being incommensurate with the magnitude of his transactions, its object was frustrated, and our remaining patrimony melted like the flux in his crucibles. His scientific knowledge, as often happens, being unaccompanied by the self-knowledge which would have taught him that he was not, either by habit or inclination, a man of business. Many who were so knew how to profit by his inventions without the trouble of discovery whilst their originator was occupied in developing new practical facts to be turned to their advantage and his consequent loss. An enumeration of some of my father's manufacturing transactions, extensively and simultaneously carried on, will leave no doubt as to their failure in a pecuniary sense. First, the preparation of soda from common salt as a substitute for barilla, till then the only alkali available for soap and glass-making, Secondly, a manufactory for improvement in the production of alumina, as a mordant for silk and calico printers. Thirdly, an establishment for preparing British gum, 
as a substitute for gum senegal these products being in use amongst calico printers to the present day the latter especially being at that distant period of great utility as the foreign gum was scarce and expensive a fourth manufactory had for its object the preparation of sal ammoniac at a fifth was carried on the manufacture of white lead by a process then new to the productive science a sixth establishment on a ruinous scale as compared with his other resources was for a new process of extracting tar and other products from pit coal the former as an effective agent in protecting timber from decay whilst the refuse coke was in request amongst iron founders whose previous operations for its manufacture were wasteful and unsatisfactory after this enumeration it is unnecessary to dilate on its ruinous results it is simply the old adage of too many irons in the fire one by one his inventions fell into other hands some by fair sale but most of them by piracy when it became known that he had nothing left wherewith to maintain his rights in short with seven children to provide for he found himself a ruined man in the present state of manufacturing science by which the above objects are accomplished through improved means the mention of such matters may at first sight appear unnecessary yet seventy years ago they bore the same relation to the manufacturing processes of our time as at that period did the crude attempts at the steam engine to its modern perfection in this point of view which is the true one reference to my father's patents though now superseded by improvements will fairly entitle him to no mean place amongst other inventors of his day who deservedly rank as benefactors to their country one of my father's scientific achievements must not be passed over cavendish had some time previously ascertained the existence of hydrogen priestley had become acquainted with its inflammable character but the earl of dundonald may fairly lay claim to the practical application of its illuminating power in carburetted form in prosecution of his coal-tar patent my father went to reside at the family estate of Colross abbey the better to superintend the works of his own collieries as well as others on the adjoining estates of valleyfield in kincardine in addition to these works an experimental tar kiln was erected near the abbey and here coal gas became accidentally employed in illumination having noticed the inflammable nature of a vapour rising during the distillation of tar the earl by way of experiment fitted a gun-barrel to the education pipe leading from the condenser on applying fire to the muzzle a vivid light blazed forth across the waters of the frith becoming as was afterwards ascertained distinctly visible on the opposite shore strangely enough though quick in appreciating a new fact lord dundonald lightly passed over the only practical product which might have realized his expectations of retrieving the dilapidated fortunes of our house considering tar and coke to constitute the legitimate objects of his experiments and regarding the illuminating property of gas merely as a curious natural phenomenon like columbus he had the egg before him but unlike columbus he did not hit upon the right method of setting it on end the incident just narrated took place about the year seventeen eighty two and the circumstances attending it are more vividly impressed on my memory from an event which occurred during a subsequent journey with my father to london on our way we paid a visit to james watt then residing at handsworth near birmingham and amongst other scientific subjects discussed during our stay were the various products of coal including the gaslight phenomenon of the Colross abbey tar kiln this gave rise to some interesting conversation which however 
ended without further results. Many years afterwards, Mr. Murdoch, then one of Mr. Watt's assistants at Soho, applied coal gas to the illumination of that establishment. Though even with this practical demonstration, its adoption for purposes of general public utility did not keep pace with the importance of the fact thus successfully developed, until, by the persevering endeavours of Mr. Windsor, its advantages overcame prejudice. It is no detraction from Mr. Murdoch's merit, of having been the first to turn coal gas to useful account, to infer that what might, at some period during the interval, have narrated to him the incident just mentioned, and that the fact accidentally developed by my father had thus become the subject of long and careful experiment. For this must have been the case, before the complete achievement shone forth in perfection. Mr. Murdoch, so far as I am aware, never laid claim to a discovery of the illuminating property of coal gas, but to its useful application only, to which his right is indisputable. As it is not generally known to whom an earlier practical appreciation of gaslight was in reality due, I have placed these facts on record. One notice more of my father's investigations may be permissible. To Sir Humphrey Davy is usually ascribed the honour of first pointing out the relation between agriculture and chemistry. Reference to a work published in 1795, entitled A Treatise Showing the Intimate Connection Between Agriculture and Chemistry, by the Earl of Dundonald, will decide the priority. Davy's work may, in a theoretical point of view, surpass that of my father, insomuch as the analytical chemical science of a more modern date is more minute than that of the last century. But in point of patient investigation, from countless practical experiments, my father's work is more than equal to that of his distinguished successor in the same field, and is, indeed, held in no small estimation at the present time. The reader will readily pardon me for thus devoting a few pages by way of tribute to a parent whose memory still exists amongst my most cherished recollections, even though his discoveries, now of national utility, ruined him, and deprived his posterity of their remaining paternal inheritance. During boyhood we had the misfortune to lose our mother, and as our domestic fortunes were even then at a low ebb, great difficulty was experienced in providing us with the means of education four of us being then at an age to profit by more ample opportunities. In this emergency, temporary assistance was volunteered by Mr. Rowland, the Minister of Culross, who thus evinced his gratitude for favours received in the more auspicious days of the family. Highly as was the offer appreciated, family pride prevented our reaping from it the advantage contemplated by a learned and truly excellent man. Perceiving our education imperilled, the devotedness of my maternal grandmother, Mrs. Gilchrist, prompted her to apply her small income to the exigencies of her grandchildren. By the aid thus opportunely afforded, a tutor was provided, of whom my most vivid recollection is a stinging box on the ear, in reply to a query as to the difference between an interjection and a conjunction. This solution of the difficulty effectually repressing further philological inquiry on my part. We were, after a time, temporarily provided with a French tutor, a Monsieur Durand, who, being a papist, was regarded with no complacent eye by our not very tolerant Presbyterian neighbours. I recollect this gentleman getting into a scrape which, but for my father's countenance, might have ended in a Kirk session. As a matter of course, Monsieur Durand did not attend Abbey Church. On one side of the churchyard was the Calross Abbey Cherry Garden, full of fine fruit, of which he was very fond as were also the magpies which swarmed in the district. One Sunday, whilst the people were at church, 
the magpies aware no doubt of their advantage made a vigorous onslaught on the cherries provoking the frenchman who was on the watch to open fire on the intruders with a fowling piece the effect of this reached farther than the magpies to fire a gun on the sabbath was an abomination which could only have emanated from a disciple of the scarlet lady and neither before nor after did i witness such a hubbub in the parish whatever pains and penalties were to be found in scottish church law were eagerly demanded for monsieur durand's benefit and it was only by my father's influence that he was permitted to escape the threatened martyrdom annoyed at the ill feeling thus created he relinquished his engagement before we had acquired the rudiments of the french language even this inadequate tuition was abruptly ended by my father taking me with him to london his object in visiting the metropolis was to induce the government to make use of coltar for protecting the bottoms of inferior ships of war for in those days copper sheeting was unknown the best substitute by no means a general one was to drive large-headed iron nails over the whole ship's bottom which had thus the appearance of being hobnailed even this indifferent covering was accorded to superior vessels only the smaller class being entirely left to the ravages of the worm it was for the protection of these small vessels that my father hoped to get his application adopted and there is no doubt of the benefit which would have resulted had the experiment been permitted but this was an innovation and the board of admiralty being then as too often since opposed to everything inconsistent with ancient routine refused to entertain his proposal it was only by means of political influence that he at length induced the navy board to permit him at his own expense to cover with his composition one side of the boy at the nore the result was satisfactory but he was not allowed to repeat the process as compared with the exposure at that time of ships bottoms to rapid destruction without any effort to protect them my father's plan was an even greater improvement than is the modern substitution of copper sheeting for the hobnail surface which it tardily superseded failing to induce the government to protect their ships of war he applied to the mercantile interest but with no better success i remember going with my father to limehouse in the hope of inducing a large shipbuilder there to patronise his composition but the shipbuilder had an even greater horror of innovation than the admiralty authorities his reply was remarkable my lord said he we live by repairing ships as well as by building them and the worm is our best friend rather than use your preparation i would cover ships bottoms with honey to attract worms foiled in london my father set on foot agencies at the outports in the hope of introducing provincial shipbuilders to adopt his preservative prejudice however was not confined to the metropolis and the objection of the limehouse man was everywhere encountered neither they nor any artisans in wood would patronize a plan to render their work durable unsuccessful everywhere my father turned his attention to myself my destination was originally the army whether accordant with my taste or not for he was not one of those who considered it necessary to consult the inclinations of his children in the choice of a profession but rather how he could best bring family influence to bear upon their future interests unfortunately for his passive obedience theory my penchant was for the sea any hint however to this effect was peremptorily silenced by parental authority against which it was useless to contend my uncle the honourable captain afterwards admiral sir alexander cochrane had the sagacity to perceive that as inclination became more rooted with my growth passive obedience on this point might one day come to an end still further he was kind enough to provide against such contingency should it arise unknown to my father 
he had entered my name on the books of various vessels under his command, so that, nominally, I had formed part of the complement of the Vesuvius, Carolina, La Sophie, and Hind. The object, common in those days, being to give me a few years standing in the service, should it become my profession in reality. Having, however, a relative in the army who possessed influence at the horse guards, a military commission was also procured for me, so that I had simultaneously the honour of being an officer of His Majesty's 104th Regiment and a nominal seaman on board my uncle's ship. By way of initiation into the mysteries of the military profession, I was placed under the tuition of an old sergeant, whose first lessons well accorded with his instructions not to pay attention to my foibles. My hair, cherished with boyish pride, was formally cut, and plastered back with a vile composition of candle grease and flour, to which was added the torture incident to the cultivation of an incipient cue. My neck, from childhood open to the lowland breeze, was encased in an inflexible leathern collar or stock, selected according to my preceptor's notions of military propriety, these almost verging on strangulation. A blue semi-military tunic with red collar and cuffs, in imitation of the Windsor uniform, was provided, and to complete the tout ensemble, my father, who was a determined Whig partisan, insisted on my wearing yellow waistcoat and breeches, yellow being the Whig colour, of which I was admonished never to be ashamed. A more certain mode of calling into action the dormant obstinacy of a sensitive, high-spirited lad could not have been devised than that of converting him into a caricature hateful to himself and ridiculous to others. As may be imagined, my costume was calculated to attract attention, the more so from being accompanied by a stature beyond my years. Passing one day near the Duke of Northumberland's palace at Charing Cross, I was beset by a troop of ragged boys, evidently bent on amusing themselves at the expense of my personal appearance, and in their peculiar slang, indulging in comments thereon far more critical than complimentary. Stung to the quick, I made my escape from them, and rushing home, begged my father to let me go to sea with my uncle, in order to save me from the degradation of flowered head, pigtail, and yellow breeches. This burst of despair aroused the indignation of the parent and the wig, and the reply was a sound cuffing. Remonstrance was useless, but my dislike to everything military became confirmed, and the events of that day certainly cost His Majesty's 104th Regiment an officer, notwithstanding that my military training proceeded with redoubled severity. At this juncture, my father's circumstances became somewhat improved by a second marriage, so that my brother Basil and myself were sent to Mr. Chauvet's academy in Kensington Square, in order to perfect our military education, Basil, like myself, being destined for the army. At this excellent school, we only remained six months, for with slightly increased resources, my father resumed his ruinous manufacturing pursuits, so that we were compelled by the res angusta domini to return to Scotland. Footnote begins. Lord Dundonald, about this time, entered upon a series of experiments which, as usual, were productive of more benefit to his country than himself, viz. an improved mode of preparing hemp and flax for the manufacture of sailcloth. For this he subsequently took out a patent, and submitted his process, together with samples of the manufacture, to the Admiralty. So sensible was the board of the advantages of the plan, that it was subsequently stipulated in every contract that hemp should be steeped and boiled in the way recommended in his lordship's patent. Since that period, the use of sailcloth so manufactured has become general. 
Formerly it was sold by weight, the worthless material of which it was composed being saturated with a composition of flour and whitening, so that the first shower of rain, on a new sail, completely whitewashed the decks. Of so flimsy a nature were the sails, when this composition was washed out, that I have taken an observation of the sun through the foretopsail, and brought it to a horizon through the foresail. Footnote ends. Four years and a half were now wasted, without further attempt to secure for us any regular training. We had, however, during the short advantage enjoyed at Kensington, studied diligently, and were thus enabled to make some progress by self-tuition, our tutor's acquirements extending only to teaching the rudiments to the younger branches of the family. Knowing that my future career depended on my own efforts, and more than ever determined not to take up my military commission, I worked assiduously at the meagre elements of knowledge within my reach, in the hope that by unremitting industry my father might be convinced that opposition to his views was no idle whim, but the result of conviction that I should not excel in an obnoxious profession. Pleased with my progress, and finding my resolution in favour of the naval service unalterable, he at length consented that my commission should be cancelled, and that the renewed offer of my uncle to receive me on board his frigate should be accepted. The difficulty was to equip me for sea, but it was obviated by the Earl of Hopeton considerately advancing a hundred pounds for the purpose. With this sum the requisite outfit was procured, and a few days placed me in a position to seek my fortune, with my father's gold watch as a keepsake, the only patrimony I ever inherited. The Dowager Countess of Dundonald, then meditating a journey to London, offered to take me with her. On our arrival in the metropolis, after what was, at that time, the formidable achievement of a tour through Wales, her leadership went to reside with her brother, General James Stuart, in Grosvenor Street. But anxious to become initiated into the mysteries of my profession, I preferred going on board the Hind at Sheerness, joining the ship on the 27th of June, 1793, at the mature age, for a midshipman, of seventeen years and a half. End of chapter 1. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.